From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. In my experience, when you actually begin to study what the Bible is and who who Jesus was, you see that at every moment, what Jesus was doing was he was challenging power structures at every every turn. He was really annoying that way. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't suggest you follow him if you don't want some trouble, because if you follow him, you're going to have to be speaking truth to power. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a certified life coach, and an author of the no-nonsense blog, Jersey Girl Jesus. And she's host of the podcast, White on White, which imagines white identity apart from pseudo-supremacy. We'll get into what that means in our conversation. She's also currently pursuing a Master of Divinity at Christian Theological Seminary. She lives in New Jersey with her family, and today we're going to be talking about her recent book, Good White Race. Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Carrie Connolly, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here today. I'm excited to have you. And let's just name at the outset that you and I are two people who are coded in our culture as being white. And mm-hmm. that means that you and I are having a conversation about racial and racist subjects that we in some ways are dealing with in a theoretical sense because we have not directly encountered the racism that you talk about in your book. So let's just own that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And with that then, let's Let's dig into your book and especially its title, because I think it's going to throw some people in my listening audience off to hear these words together, good, yeah. white, racist. So let's dig into that. What are you meaning when you're talking about this phrase, good, white, racist? And maybe, as you did in your book, let's take them one word at a time. Mm. So, you know, first I want to address the the very good point that you bring up about the fact that we're two white people talking about this. And my first point about that that I want to just acknowledge is, thank God, <laughs> thank God white people are finally starting to talk about this issue. And the way that I do that is I really, uh, you know, I can't talk about what it means or what it's like to be Black in America, for example, but I can talk about whiteness. I can talk about my experience as a white person and unpack that. And so that's what I really try to do in the in the work that I do in the world. That's, that's the lens that I, or, and the, the way that I try to approach it. So when I started to think about writing a book and I thought about what I was going to call it, good white racist really kind of fit the bill because there are so many white people that I know and in the conversations that we have around race, it's their desire to be good and to protect this sense of their inherent goodness that causes them to not be able to actually acknowledge and deconstruct the racism that has been programmed into them through our culture. And that's true of all white people. If we have been assigned whiteness, then we have in us embedded ideas of pseudo-supremacy. And we need to be willing to unpack that if we actually care about being good in the world. If we actually want to do good work and be good people, we need to acknowledge the fact that there might be some stuff in us that's not so great. So that's essentially what what I'm, I'm talking about when I say good white racist. And to take it word by word, goodness is, is such an American core identity, right? Americans especially love to be the good guys. And I think that we have to recognize that that's a a huge part of of the the embedded identity that's been programmed into us through media and through all of the things that we consume as a culture. Whiteness is an identity that has been assigned to us. 
And depending on your ancestry and when your ancestors came over, you might be anywhere on a, on a spectrum of whiteness, but most likely if you've been assigned whiteness, you are benefiting from the privileges of that skin, whether you feel privileged or not. And racist is essentially a word that talks about the systemic nature of the way that racist structures work. And it's important, I think, also to understand that there's always a double layer to this. There's the interpersonal, there's what's happening in our interpersonal relationships and within our own psyches. And then there is the systemic nature, the body politic and all that. And and we have to be paying attention to both. And so that's what I'm trying to get at in the book. Well, and I appreciate you taking time to unpack what you're meaning by this title, Good White Racist. But you also, in the subtitle of the book, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. And let's take a moment and talk about that, because oftentimes in our culture, goodness and confrontation are not seen as being compatible with one another. In fact, mm. to be a good person, you're supposed to be non-confrontational and nice. So talk mm. to me about the confrontation aspect of this. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the most important things and the, the most important act of anti-racism that a white person can do is to confront the racism within ourselves. It has to start with us. And I think that especially after all of the things that have been happening in our world most recently, one of the dangers is to fall into a, a form of performative anti-racism, which is where we're, we're doing the work. We're sharing memes on social media and we're saying the right things, but there's not actual work that's being done within ourselves. And, you know, listen, I get that because it's not fun work to do. It's truly a form of you know, Andre Henry, who is a, an anti-racist black man who I suggest everyone follow, he's he's really brilliant. He says he wonders about if white people can actually do this because he says, isn't it akin to self-annihilation? And in a sense, it really is, right? Because it really is a matter of deconstructing so much of who we think we are. And that's not easy, comfortable work to do, but it's definitely worthy, holy, sacred work. So it really has to start with confronting our own role and how we have played a part before we can ever move out into the world and actually do real anti-racism work in the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a life coach, and an author of the blog Jersey Girl Jesus. We're talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Well, a moment ago, when we began the show, I said that you and I are individuals who are coded as white in our culture. And in an earlier answer, you used the phrase assigned whiteness. And I think some listeners' ears may have perked up at that point, and they may have become very confused because they would say, I'm not assigned whiteness. I'm not coded as white. I'm just white. Mm -hmm. And so let's dig into that idea that somehow a racial category like whiteness is just a given or a natural thing in our world. Where does that mm. come from? Oh, that's such a good question. And the thing about all of this is that it's messy and it's contextual and it's very, very, very fluid. And when you look at the history of whiteness, it, it obviously it derives from, you know, the European, our European ancestry and the original colonizers who came here, who took land, um, who, and then settled, settled in here in this land. And those uh, original colonizers were the original white guys, you know, so they were, they were white. And then as people groups began to move over and come over and, and assimilate into the, what was becoming the American culture, we all were assigned whiteness, depending on who was in the room at, at a time. I always use the analogy or the, the example of my own heritage, my own Irish ancestors who came over here. And, you know, depending on who was in the room with them at any given time, they could be considered white, sort of white or not white at all. Right. So what I mean by that is that they could come over and they literally could see a sign that said 
no blacks, no Irish on an establishment. And they would not be allowed to go in there because they were not white enough. It's not about the color of their skin. It's about their culture, their identity, right? So they were not white enough to walk into one establishment. However, they could walk down the street, walk into another establishment, and then turn around and say, you're not white enough to a Black person to come in, or you're not white enough to an Italian person to come in here. So at any given time, they were assimilating into this hierarchy of whiteness. And it really depends on, ultimately, it depends on access to power and resources, right? So if you become a threat, and you become somebody who, as a people group, who might trigger my sense of lack by making me think that you're going to take something that's not mine because you have access to resources, then I'm going to make you not quite as white. <laughs> I'm going to make you not white. But if if I think that I might have something to gain by you coming on my side, if I think that you are not a threat to me, then sure, you can be white with me. That's cool. You know, that that's kind of in a very simple term, that's kind of how whiteness works. It really depends on who's in the room at, at the time. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Whiteness is not about a skin tone, and whiteness is not about a state of being in a given sense like like a, a sort of natural thing. Instead, whiteness is a way of understanding who is and who should, and I'm going to scare quote should, right. who is and who should have access to power and resources in a given social moment. Have I heard that correctly? Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you for distilling my my uh, <laughs> extra verbiage down to that concise soundbite. That, that was good. But that also then gets coupled with something else. And it's not just who has access, but also who in our culture is treated as normal or normative in the culture. And so yes. I, wa- I want to think about that a little bit with you for just a moment. What does it mean to say that white is not only those who have access, but those who by dint of their moral status or their social status deserve access? Mm, yes. Oh, that's so good and so important. So there's this idea of this the social contract and when you tie the social contract with whiteness and the and the concept of the for example the doctrine of dominion which is in bed with you know the beginnings of all of racism and whiteness and the church and all of those things, right? And if if I may, just for a moment, tell our listeners what the Doctrine of Dominion was. So the Doctrine of Dominion was a series of papal bulls that were were issued that essentially gave European, I don't want to call them explorers because they didn't didn't necessarily discover stuff, but they were people, colonizers, I'll call them, and imperialists, who the church gave them their blessing to go out and colonize any non-Christian land to the point where they were permitted to rape, pillage, and murder the people that were there if they were not Christian under the guise of conversion. But of course, once they converted them, they would have to be nice to them. So they didn't really, they weren't so serious about the actual conversion part because then they couldn't take the land. So that's that sense of the doctrine of dominion. But when you couple that with this idea of pseudo-supremacy, and I I call it pseudo-supremacy for a reason, but when you combine that with this idea that whiteness is closer to God, somehow holier, then what happens is you get this really kind of messed up sense of identity that says, as a white person, I am somehow not just holier, better, superior, but I am also responsible for controlling those who are not white who are in my space, right? And so obviously there are some people by the the nature of their skin tone, and this is where it gets paradoxical, who will never be able to assimilate in fully into whiteness the way my Irish ancestors have been able to do. And so those people will always be seen as what's under what's called the savage construct, this idea that they are, they somehow need to be trained and controlled. Now, none of this is true. None of this is based on science or a fact or any, I mean, obviously this is all a construct of belief that people have bought into and we've suppressed it so much that we don't even recognize that it's operating in our psyches, but it's there. And the way I can tell you it's there is as white people, how often, as an example, might you see a young black man wearing a hoodie and some baggy pants and a hoodie, and then you're surprised when you, to find out that he's got a PhD, right? Because you have this idea of this savage construct in your head that people of a certain color are somehow 
when they actually do something successful, when they are doing, when they are aspiring to the fullness of their human flourishing, they are an exception to the rule rather than just doing their thing. Does that make sense? It does. And, and we'll, we'll dig into this more when we come back from the break. But for now, let's just take a moment and let everyone know that they're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a life coach, and author of the blog Jersey Girl, host of the podcast White on White. And today we're talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a life coach, and she's author of the no-nonsense blog, Jersey Girl Jesus, and she's host of the podcast, White on White, which reimagines white identity apart from pseudo-supremacy. We're talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. I mentioned a moment ago that your podcast, White on White, is trying to confront pseudo-supremacy, and you've also used this word pseudo-supremacy in our conversation. Let's unpack that. What do you mean when you use this phrase pseudo-supremacy? Yeah, I think it's that language is really powerful. I'm passionate about using language for the uplift of humanity, and it's the reason that it, language is so powerful is because it's so insidious, right? We don't see it in operation. And a really great example from a different, a slightly different standpoint, it's still about dominance, but for example, the difference between the way the word master and mistress have evolved over the course of time in the English language, where master is, as a masculine form, has been imbued with power and mistress is more about a sexually immoral woman, right? So all of the messaging and the images that are conveyed in that word, in those two words, are powerful and they reinforce things. And so I don't want to continually reinforce this idea that whiteness is supreme or superior. So I want to address and make the point that this is a construct, that this is a false idea that whiteness is supreme. So I call it pseudo-supremacy because it's a thing in that it exists, it wields power, it has teeth and claws, and it does harm. So I'm not trying to erase it, but I want to call it what it is, which is a false construct. That's really helpful. And in fact, one of your chapters in your book, Good White Racist, is about the power of language, even up to the idea of making the claim that language can be a form of torture. And I'd love for you just to talk about that for a moment, because you said just a moment ago that you want to be very precise in your language. What can language do to a human being? Because we oftentimes hear sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You're taking a different tack. Unpack that for me. Yeah. So with language, you know, language is the way that we assert our identity and our views in the world. And it's also used to define us, right? Again, as, as example, the difference between master and mistress. Another example from my friend, Joya Dakari, who's a playwright. She says in her play called Truth Values, One Girl's Romp Through MIT's Male Math Maze. She says that there's no equivalent word for emasculate in the English language, right? So that talks a little bit about value. We don't necessarily value the feminine gender as much as, or the feminine identity as much as the male identity. So we don't need a word about something that takes it away, right? So so that kind of helps us I, see how language can ascribe value and devalue. One of the things that I learned in doing research for this book is that 
when what the point of torture when governments use torture or uh, captives use torture the point of torture is to reduce the victim to a prelingual state so that they essentially lose a sense of their identity and then what happens is once we lose language once we have been reduced back to this prelingual state the captor can then superimpose their own agenda onto our psyche and use our voice to speak that out. And we see that as an example when we, you might see prisoners being put onto a screen to read a script without acknowledging that they're reading a script of their captor, right? And one of the things that research has shown is that although it might seem super logical that a torture victim would want revenge in the form of some sort of physical violence, against their captor if given the opportunity, that that's actually proves to be unsatisfactory. And what they actually truly want and what brings the torture victim healing is to be able to tell their story, to be able to be heard, to reclaim their identity and to cause the air to ripple with the, with the sound waves of their truth, right? And so I think that language for that reason is a really powerful way that whiteness continues to oppress people, the BIPOC community, especially in the United States. And it's one of the ways that we perpetuate systemic racism. We do that by refusing to hear and listen to the stories and the pain of the BIPOC community, specifically uh, the Black community. We continue to insist that they tell us their story in a different way. We want them to be more polite, but when they're polite, we tell them not to do it on during our football game. And then when they get really loud and they take over our streets, we tell them they need to be more polite and, and nicer about it. And all of this equates to not actually listening to them, not allowing them to have voice. And so in that way, we are perpetuating torture because these are people who are trying to tell us a story of the way that they have been harmed and murdered and tortured, and we just refuse to listen. And that breaks my heart. You've used a phrase a couple times that I want to make sure our listeners are tracking with. You've used this word BIPOC. Can you unpack mm. for us what that means? Yes, it means Black, Indigenous, people of color. And I have learned, I'm always learning, every day I learn, there's still so much for me to learn about this. And I learned recently from some guys I was talking to that as Black men, they said that they preferred to not use the, the phrase people of color to describe Black people because they feel that the Black experience in, in the United States is so unique. And so I try to honor that. And, and although I use people of color in the book, if I had an opportunity to rewrite it or to, to do another edition, I would change that to BIPOC as much as possible or to use particularity because I think it's important. So I heard in your earlier answer that part of what the hegemony of whiteness does is it robs people of their stories. And part of what happens when a person reclaims agency is they reclaim power over their own story. Yeah. That tracks closely with another concept that you look at in your book, Good White Racist, and that's the practice of gaslighting. And this term has become uh, much more prevalent recently, but maybe for those that are unfamiliar with the definition of the term, what do we mean when we use the term gaslighting? So the term Gaslighting very specifically means you're kind of making somebody feel like they're crazy when they're pointing to the truth, right? So the idea is when somebody, for example, let's say you do something to somebody and, and it harms you and they say to you, that harmed me. And you say, oh, don't, you're, you're taking it. You're being too serious. You, you, I was just joking. It's a very dismissive form of emotional violence that can do so much damage because it's it dismisses and invalidates another person's experience and it keeps you off the hook all the time because you never have to actually take responsibility. And one of the ways that it's done, and white people do it to the BIPOC community all the time, and a perfect example of this is, is the Take a Knee movement, is that we will very intentionally change the subject and essentially blame the person for their own abuse, right? So when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling on the field 
we wanted, we decided we were going to talk about everything except the thing that he was kneeling about, which was police brutality, right? We decided we were going to talk about the flag. We decided we were going to talk about soldiers. We decided we were going to talk about how he should play the game and do his job as if he wasn't doing his job. We decided we were going to talk about how we don't get paid to protest on our job when we're working at our job, right? So we decided to talk about all of the things and that causes the BIPOC community to then have to re-spend all of this energy saying, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this over here. And white people refuse to do it. We refuse to enter into that conversation. And that is a form of gaslighting. And then on top of that, we will tell the Black community that they are wrong for even wanting to talk about it. And then And as I said earlier, we'll tell them they were wrong for kneeling on the football field for protesting peacefully. And then when they protest in a way that's not so convenient for us, then we get mad at them for that. So what's the right way for for Black people to help, help us understand their pain? What is the right way for them to do that? We gaslight them at every turn. We tell them it's not the right way. How can we do better? There has to be a way for us to do better. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking with Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a life coach, and an author of the no-nonsense blog, Jersey Girl Jesus. We're talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Well, it's not every day on the radio that I get to mention the Algerian philosopher Jacques Derrida, but you mention and give a shout out to Derrida in your book, Good White Racist, in the context of this phrase that you've used earlier, deconstruction. And I'm certain that many of my listeners have heard that phrase sometimes maybe being used as a verb, oftentimes being used as an insult, like um, it just depends on kind of how you've encountered that term. But briefly, let's talk talk about what Derrida's idea of deconstruction was, and it has to do with binaries like black and white. Walk us through that. Yeah. So I, I, and I have to admit, you know, I will grossly oversimplify Derrida because he, he does make my uh, brain kind of dribble out my ears. So I do my best to understand what he is saying, but what he says about a binary is the world loves binaries. We love things to be one thing or the other. And if you notice, as you start to look around at and and pay attention to the binaries that we construct in our daily living, things like, for example, black and white, things like soul versus body, physical versus, you know, things like that, you'll notice that there's a slight hierarchy involved in those binaries, that there's always one thing that you value just a little bit more than another, that has a little bit more of a sense of inherent goodness to it than the other thing. So what Derrida said is that if you flip the binary, like, so we can say, okay, well, we're in order to fix that problem, because we don't want the one thing to be always construed as the good thing, we're going to try to flip the binary. Well, that doesn't work because you'll have the same problem. If we decide all of a sudden, if we could snap our fingers and all of a sudden, everything that is part of Black culture could be the thing that we want, which is also paradoxical because we white America does want black culture. We just don't want black people. Right? Like That's a whole other conversation. But let's say that that all of a sudden black people could have the power and white people were the oppressed we would still have the same problem. So what Derrida says is we need to deconstruct it all. We need to we need to kind of burn it all down to the ground so that we can truly build something up that's new and non-binary that we can start to see the spectrum and the continuum and the circle and rather than this weird fraction binary thing. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and this is something that you come back to again and again and again, in our system, people are dying and they're being killed by a kind of state power. And they're being killed in ways that are either being shot or being, you know, deprived of oxygen. 
One way of thinking about solving that problem would be simply to flip who it is that's doing the killing to bring about a violent revolution and say, well, if we if we arm then those that are being oppressed, they will rise up against their oppressors and they will flip. And if I'm hearing you correctly, Derrida would say, well, the problem with that is that even though you're changing the content of the structure, the structure remains the same. There's still people dying. There's still violent conflict. There's still oppression from something that looks like a state. If I'm hearing you right, deconstruction then says, well, let's actually look at the structure wherein this content is given the power and let's dismantle that structure so that so that it's no longer possible for one of these poles of the binary to have power over the other first of all have I have I gotten that clearly from you yeah that's that's a great practical example from from real life yeah that's perfect well there are those who are invested greatly and profit greatly from the structure being the way that it is. <laughs> and, and let's be honest, you and I, as people who are assigned whiteness, who are coded as white, we are the beneficiaries of that structure. And so in many ways, we are working against our own vested interests to deconstruct this binary. Why, first of all, should those who are enjoying the power ever be willing, why would they ever be willing to dismantle the very thing that gives them power and privilege? What, yeah. what can we possibly give them or what can we possibly offer people that will bring them to think that that's a good idea? Yeah, that's that's the question. And it's the question that I, I try to lean into daily. And for me personally, it does come down to faith, right? Because there is this vast unknown. There's this, this like, oh, oh my gosh, what will we be if we can't be this, right? And for me, what happens in my thought process is that I then need to start looking at intersectionality and I need to start looking at narratives that are being fed to me and interrogating them and making sure and, and questioning whether they're, they're true or not. Right. And so I start to, I have to start looking at the narrative of patriarchy, for example, and I have to start looking at how patriarchy intersects with racism and what are the narratives that patriarchy feeds me, that I have swallowed whole without even wondering about, and what do I need to look at and deconstruct there? And then I have to look at capitalism. That's a big one. And I have to look at how does capitalism and racism, how do, how do they intersect and what do I need to interrogate and dismantle within capitalism in order to create this new thing? And then I have to lean on faith Right. And and I have to really try to understand for me personally, as somebody who follows Jesus, although I don't necessarily ascribe to the religion, the institution of religion as much as I used to. But I'm mad in love with Jesus. And um, if I'm really going to follow what he teaches, then I have to ask, well, how do I need to be thinking about the stories of lack that capitalism and patriarchy and racism tell me, and I need to interrogate if they are actually true. And I also need to interrogate stories like the savage construct and ask myself if they are really true. And I need to determine if once I have figured out that they're not true and that there's not a whole lot of truth there, I need to that opens me up then to be able to start thinking about, you know, just because Black people begin to access human flourishing does not mean that I will flourish less. And am I actually really experiencing human flourishing in a capitalistic society that is always going to try to exploit my labor for the lowest possible amount for their biggest gain? And it helps me to start to recognize who is actually my comrade in this, to use a very loaded term, right? But but who is actually the person that I want to come alongside and who is actually the enemy? And the whole thing kind of shifts. And I, I kind of hate those ideas, those words like comrade and enemy, but that is kind of what we're looking at here, right? There's, there is a power structure that has been spent a lot of time and invested a lot of energy in getting me to look at Black people and think that they are the threat because they want something that I have, when in fact, 
over there, that power structure has more than enough for all of us and then some. And as long as they can keep me looking over here, then they get to hoard everything that they've got over there. Wow, there's a lot in what you just said. And and let me let me pull out the through line that I'm hearing. So you're foregrounding faith in this. Mm-hmm. And here's how I understood what you're saying. Capitalism is one example of an intersectional narrative that gives us a story, and it's a story of scarcity. It's a story mm-hmm. of saying there's not enough. And if you give these folks who are disenfranchised, who are oppressed, if you give them more, you get less. That's the story that capitalism is giving us. Yes. On the other side of this is this wonderful story that Jesus tells us, that Jesus shows us about the loaves and the fishes, that even in scarcity, there's enough for all. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're taking the story that Jesus gives us, that those that come at the 11th hour will be paid as much as those that work at the first hour, that the loaves and fishes will be enough for everybody, even though it looked like there was scarcity. And you're saying, that's the story I want to live in. That's the story that's the better story. Am I hearing that right when you're when you're calling this faith or, or you're doing this in some other way? Yeah, no, that is definitely the story. I think that we, we have two different realities that we have access to. You know, we have the the reality of this this lived experience as it is now, or we have a prophetic imagination that Jesus gave us, right? And Jesus gave us an imagination that is filled with the abundance of God. And if that's who we're going to be, if that's the... And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about you know, health and wealth, prosperity gospel. That is, that is not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is shalom. I'm talking about the kingdom of God, not king, kingdom of God, where everyone, uh, John Frankie says this, and, and I said it in the book and I love it. It's his kind of vision. Uh, and I hope I get it right. It's something like, um, a world where everyone has enough and no one needs to be afraid. You know, no one needs to be afraid that they're going to put, that they're not going to be able to put food on the table. No one needs to be afraid that their son is going to go drive the car for the first time, get pulled over and and die. No one has to live in fear that they can't walk down the street and be the victim of sexual violence. No one has to live in fear that their child is going to die of a disease because they're medication costs $5,000 a day. There's so much imbalance and injustice in the world that is fed by capitalism and by patriarchy and by racism. They are all interconnected. And I think that when we begin to deconstruct them and really look at them, and it's not easy work because they're all tangled up. They are all tangled up but we have to lean into a prophetic imagination of what could be because as long as we are facing a big void around what could be we're not going to have the the courage to pull apart what we already have right so i think and i think that that has to start with white people because white people are the ones that think have been fooled into thinking that we have so much to lose If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Carrie Connolly. She is a writer, a life coach, and author of the no-nonsense blog, Jersey Girl Jesus. We're talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. 
I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're talking with Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a life coach, and she's author of the no-nonsense blog, Jersey Girl Jesus, and she hosts the podcast, White on White. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Well, Carrie Connolly, if I may ask, what was it that got you into this work in the first place? What made you commit yourself to anti-racism? I'm really glad that you asked that question because it's a story I love to tell. (laughs) So when I was in my first or second semester of seminary, well, my very first class, we had a, a really amazing conversation in that class, and it was a very diverse class about race and racism and whiteness. And we were all coming from very different levels of racial awareness. Uh, Some of us were Black, some of us were white, some of us were BIPOC. And that conversation, it was intense and exhausting, but it was also very life-giving. And I think so many deep relationships were forged from that experience. And then in the second in a second semester, I was assigned to uh, an assignment to, to listen to an episode of On Being with Ruby Sales. And if you're not familiar with Ruby Sales, she is a public theologian. She's a womanist. She practices womanism, womanist theology. And when she was 17, she was an activist and she was at a civil rights rally. And a she was standing on the front porch uh, or the porch of a, of a local general store in Alabama and a white man walked up to the group with a rifle and began shooting and he aimed for her and a white seminarian jumped in front of her and took the bullet for her, saved her life and died immediately. And that episode of On Being was so pivotal. I listened to it about 10 times over and over again because I was so struck by her story. And in that episode, Ruby Sales asked this question that just stopped me in my tracks. She said, you know, I understand that we have a Black liberating theology, and that's good that we have a Black liberating theology. But what I want to know is where is the white liberating theology? Where is the theology that liberates white people from who are who are addicted to meth in Massachusetts or, or white people in Appalachia who are hungry and can't put food on the table? Where is their white liberating theology? And that was, at first, I was so struck by the generosity, but that's pure womanism. I mean, that's just, womanism is just such a beautiful theology. But I I was so struck by the generosity of that statement and also by the challenge in that statement that, yeah, like, where is the, the, the theology that will liberate white people from this pseudo supremacy that is disfiguring our souls? And that really, I couldn't get that out of my mind. And then then following semester, I actually got to meet Ruby Sales at the Revolutionary Love Conference in New York City. And I literally sat at her feet as she sat in the chair in the, in the church. And I literally sat at her feet and she held my hand on her lap and she looked me in the eye and she said, white supremacy is soul murder. It murders the souls of white people. And I was and she's intense. Like, I mean, she, she is intense to stare into her eyes. It was uh, a moment I will never forget. And I just couldn't stop talking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that's kind of, that's how I started to really start to realize that white people have suffered a failure of imagination. We have not yet begun to engage that prophetic imagination as to what we could be. What is God calling us to be instead of this this thing called white pseudo-supremacy? And so until we can start to lean into that, we're never going to release the or relinquish the hold that we have on our power now because we haven't yet figured out what we're going to be there. So first of all, thank you for walking us through that, and what a powerful story from the theologian Ruby Sales. And you put this in a phrase towards the end of your book, Good White Racist. I'm not going to get the phrase exactly right, but you correct me and and help me to sort of uh, share this with our listeners. You say, I'm really not an evangelical anymore, but if I'm an evangelical for anything, I'm trying to get you to go out and start dismantling this system. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's where, where you find you, where you find your Christian faith 
and your evangelical zeal meeting is in the desire to convert people to an active kind of faith that begins to really change the structures that are out there. Now, first of all, have I characterized that all right, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's a beautiful—yeah, that's exactly it. Well, with that being the case, again, we can look around (laughs) for— Uh, so many examples of churches that do not see Mm -hmm. the gospel in that same way. They, in fact, see this as, and let's just lay it out, they see this as Marxism, Mm -hmm. they see this as critical race theory, they see this as subversion, they see this as worldliness. How then does a person of faith who believes that their job is to convert others to an active reconstruction, to active reparation, how does a person how do we bring the church into this conversation when the church is so good at avoiding this conversation? Yeah, yeah. And again, I have to point to power, right? You know, in the fourth century, Christianity moved from a subaltern movement, a a movement of the marginalized uh, to the institutionalized, right? It became the, it moved from a faith of the people to a religion of the state. And so it it married power at that point in time. And everything, especially in Western Christianity that we, that I can speak to, I don't know enough about Eastern Christianity. I know a little, but I don't know a lot. But everything in Western Christianity that I have seen in, in the institution of religion has perpetuated power structures. But when you actually, or in my experience, when you actually begin to study what the Bible is and who who Jesus was, you see that at every moment, what Jesus was doing was he was challenging power structures at every every turn. He was really annoying that way. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't suggest you follow him if you don't want some trouble, because if you follow him, you're going to have to be speaking truth to power. He and and listen too. It's not just Jesus. Jesus was simply doing what he found in his scriptures, because <laughs> the prophets were were teaching. What does our God ask of us but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? Right. Like Jesus was doing that. So when we we, so we have to we have to look at that first of all. Then I think we have to look at at the eschatology because I think the the, the, the how we study what what happens to us after we die and and after life after death and the end of the world and all of that kind of stuff, right? And we have to think about the narratives. We have to question the narratives that we have been fed all along. And white Christian white Western Christianity has been really good at telling us not to worry so much about what's happening on this in this realm, in this world, because your reward is later. So that is a great excuse to be able to say, slaves, just obey your masters. It's fine because your reward is going to come later. And that's one of the things that I love about Black liberation theology and womanism is that they they say, no, no, no. You know, if God came down and went to the trouble of putting skin on and walking around with a skeleton, then God cares about bodies and we should too. And if Jesus came here and was concerned with feeding bellies and sticking his hands into people's wounds and spitting on them and doing all this blood and guts God kind of stuff to heal bodies, then God cares about bodies and we should too, right? And if Jesus was talking about and was challenging economic systems and was challenging government systems, then we should too. And that's how I see the the Bible and that's how I see my faith as speaking and instructing me and informing me in my actions on earth. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a life coach, and she's the author of the no-nonsense blog, Jersey Girl Jesus. We're talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Well, one of the ways that you've tried to push this question into white conversational circles is with your podcast, White on White. Talk to us about that. What is it about, and who is it for? 
So White on White is about re it's, it, it was my first foray after experiencing Ruby sales. It was my first foray into really trying to deconstruct whiteness. And I, uh, originally it was really intended to be by white people for white people. And I started it, I think in 2018. So about two years ago, and my best friend, Aisha, who is a black woman and I kind of do it together. And then I would interview guests. I've had some trouble, however, having white people come on. They, and that's, I think, part of the, the complicity of whiteness is that we don't want to talk about it because capitalism tells us we have to be perfect at everything we do. And so we're so afraid of making a mistake, especially a public mistake, that we don't want to be associated with making a public a public mistake, especially around race. And so the few white people who have come on, I have been so grateful for. What the podcast turned out to be in, in a lot of ways was a, a beautiful education that I very much needed. So many beautiful members of the BIPOC community came on and talked with me, and we've had incredible conversations that deconstruct whiteness. And I always try to end the podcast, the conversation with a question about what the guests hope for whiteness might be. What is their prophetic imagination? Because that's really what I'm trying to get to. I'm really trying, because it can't just come from me. It's It's got to be something that comes out of the collective, right? So I'm really trying to move us into that place of that prophetic imagination. What is it? What can we be aside from this thing that we are, that is not working, that is not holy, that is evil and violent and ugly? when I know that we can be and desire to be beautiful and good and sacred. And what does that look like? Well, you, you mentioned that there's a resistance on the part of potential white guests in coming on the show. And you've begun to sort of shape out for us what you think that resistance is. Capitalism tells us that we need to be perfect. What, what have you encountered when you actually have had guests that code as white, that are assigned whiteness on your program, when they begin to confront their racism, when they begin to unpack this, when they begin to think about it critically, what have been some of the responses that you've observed them going through? Mm. That's a, a really good question because I think it's really important to recognize that there is a process that that white people go through. I think it's very similar to the, the process of grief because there is a sense of deep mourning, right? And it's different from white tears. And, and this is why I say that all of this work is always going to be very paradoxical, messy, contextual, because there is such a thing as white tears, which, and that, that's, those, those are not a good thing that, and I think I'm, I'm going to totally overgeneralize here, but in general, I see that white American men tend to respond to being called out for racist behavior with anger and women, again, so general, overgeneralizing this, but women will tend to respond with tears and those tears can be, uh, the anger is manipulate is, uh, is intimidating and the tears are manipulative and they are both designed to center whiteness, right? However, there's another white response that happens and that is actual real grief. When somebody realizes they've been called out for something that they've done or said that is racist and they they have been called out. And of course, the first response is always defensiveness, but, but we can practice agency over that. And when you practice agency over that, and then you sit in that horrible discomfort of going, oh, wow, yeah, the thing that I just did or said was really racist, there's this deep grief. And then I think there's a sense of incredible overwhelm when we start to see the system for what it is and how complicated it is and how big it is. And there's this idea, there's this feeling like we're just one person and we don't know how to fix it. And the system tells us we should be able to fix it, right? Because we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do something about it. And America is great. And it's the land of opportunity and all of those things. And yet there's this huge monster in front of us and we have no idea how to slay it. And I think that the emotional sense of overwhelm and sadness and and grief at the loss of, of an identity that we thought we had and isn't true, it can be really overwhelming. And so I think that, that that's actually one of the reasons why I do this work. I, as a white woman, I get, I get a lot of critique from both sides. 
both sides, there I am creating a binary, all sides, I'll say, where there are some members of the BIPOC who say, you know, white people can't really do this work. And then white people are saying, why are you doing this work? But I think that it's recovering from whiteness is very much like recovering from an addiction. And it's your, it's a lifelong process that we're always going to be in. We're always going to be in recovery. And some of us just might be a little longer, a little further into our recovery process. And we need to come alongside people who are new to the process as sort of sponsors, right? Like in AA. And we need to, I think white people need other white people to be doing that work. It certainly should not have to, to fall on the shoulders of black people. They've done quite enough already. And not only have they done enough, they, quite frankly, they don't understand the the white experience of what it's like to, only other white people really understand that part of it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, as white people, we need to, we need to be listening to the BIPOC community. We need to be hearing those voices and letting their, their words just soak into our, our cells and really, really hear them deeply, knowing that we'll never fully understand what it's like to, to be in their situation. And at the same time, recognizing that we, we can practice agency over our defensiveness and that we have a process that we have to go through as well. And that there has to be this coming alongside. At several points in that answer, you used the word overwhelmed and overwhelming. And let's be honest, uh, when, when we do confront our complicity in this system of racial injustice, whether we've been active participants or just inactive beneficiaries, it can be very overwhelming. And so I'm going to ask you the question that you often ask your guests. What is it that keeps you hopeful in the midst of this work? Mm. So what keeps me hopeful is I continually meet white people who are willing to stay in the room and have the hard conversations. It keeps me hopeful because they are young and they are willing to do the work and they're willing to let there not be an immediate answer or solution to the problem. Right. And that's going to be really important because I think one of the things that whiteness, that American culture tells us is that we, we need to find the answer right away. The six steps to no longer being a racist. Right. And it just, it doesn't work that way. This is a lifelong paradox and, and our, our best hope honestly is that we can raise white children, a generation of white children who will be more aware, uh, have more awareness and be less tolerant of racist systems. And that can happen over and over again until eventually we actually are closer to that kingdom of God that we all hope for, you know. So that gives me hope. The other thing that gives me immense hope, and I, I have to say this too, are my Black friends who continually show us grace and love me anyway. They have made my life richer in so many different ways by being, and I'm talking about, I want to be clear when I say this, and I've been challenged on this before because I think people, I think maybe I got lazy in in the way I spoke about my friends. And that's important to call me out on that because when I talk about my Black friends, I'm talking about people who I'm in very deep relationship with, who I very much love and care about. And my heart would break in a million pieces if they suffered violence of any kind, but especially racial violence. And more importantly, that these are people who love me enough to call me out when my whiteness comes out to play. You know, um, these are people who don't give up on me, even when I say stupid things. And, um, we all need people like that in our lives. And I just happen to be, for whatever reason, a very lucky person that, that these people have decided that it's cool to stay in relationship with me when they, they don't have to. And I'm blessed and I'm lucky for that. And I take that as a, a huge honor. So that's what gives me hope. 
Well, Carrie Connolly, I have to say, your book, Good White Racist, I found it challenging, but it is so to the point, it is so clear that I was convicted by what I read. And even though I would like to think that I am committed to this kind of work, your book gave me ways that I could go deeper and ways that I can help my family to go deeper. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for committing to this work and the time that it took to write the book, but also thank you for taking time today to speak about it with me and my listeners. Thank you. This has been such a rich conversation, and I, I so appreciate your deep engagements. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Carrie Connolly. She's a writer, a life coach, author of the no-nonsense blog Jersey Girl Jesus, and host of the podcast White on White, which reimagines white identity apart from pseudo-supremacy. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.